Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. My guest today is Tony Estrella. Tony has just finished his 20th season as the artistic director of the Sandra Feinstein Gam Theater, and over his tenure, He's appeared in or directed over 70 productions. That theater is here in Warwick, Rhode Island, which is 10 minutes from where I'm sitting, which is another 10 minutes from Providence. And since Rhode Island is really a city state, like Singapore, it's close to everything. Uh, The GAM stage, um, Tony has written several works for GAM, including A Lie Agreed Upon, adaptations of Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales, Ibsen's A Doll's House, and Hedda Gabler, and Barry Unsworth's acclaimed novel Morality Play. His film credits include appearances in Martin Scorsese's The Departed, Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, and The Good House. He's a recipient of the Claiborne Pell Award for Excellence in the Arts, a longtime member of the theater faculty at his alma mater, the University of Rhode Island. And I have to say, he pops up occasionally in reruns of Law and Order, my favorite TV show, and I'm happy to see him. Tony, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Alan. Thanks for having me. Uh, listen, theater and politics seem to have gotten, you know, closer than ever these days. And we both know, um, of course, uh, Oscar Eustace, uh, who's now the artistic director of the public. And he's been writing and talking about the fact that theater is for red and blue. Theater is for everyone. Uh, how do you feel? How do you interpret his statements? How do you feel about him? I think he's absolutely right. I mean, I think. You know, Oscar uh, was a you know wonderful le- artistic leader when he was here in Providence for a long time. You know, I I, I was lucky to um, study uh, at the conservatory at Trinity Rep. Uh, and I was uh, in his first year as artistic director. I was, it was my uh, graduating year from that. Uh, and um, so he's been a big I- influence on on me and I think on all of us and certainly on the American theater. And I think most recently in the, the comments I think you're directly talking about is that sprang from if I'm not, I think I'm not mistaken in this, that there was a production, you know, of course he produced Hamilton, the biggest, <laughs> craziest hit of all time, it seems. Um, and when Hamilton uh, is still on Broadway and during its Broadway run back in the previous administration, um, Mike Pence, uh, the vice president, came to see it. And at the end of the play, the act, some actors on stage uh, made a statement to Vice President Pence um, where I think they mostly respectfully tried to engage him or to talk about policies or something like that. And what Oscar took from that um, was that, uh, and the brouhaha that kind of settled and it became a very kind of culture war political issue. Um, but he, that he thought, I think a little bit counterintuitively, uh, and I think where a lot of, a lot of us sometimes want to kind of hold down to our political tribe and where we think we belong. He said, you know what, this seems to be an indication on some level that, that maybe we're not reaching everybody. You know, maybe the theater is sending signals whether we intend to or not, that it isn't for everybody, that it is for a certain kind of, um, you know, if not a political class, uh, certain ways of thinking that we're going to, you know, that you come in and that we all we all already agree on um, all of this, these set of principles. So let's go have a show. And of course, when you do that, you don't have any surprise. There's no give and take. Um, and, uh, and, and to make a long story short, the production of Sweat, we just did a production of this last year, uh, Lynn Nottage's Great Play Sweat. And that that production was originally at the public theater. And he brought that play 
out of New York. And he brought it to the places where it was written about, Reading, Pennsylvania, and, you know, industrial uh, cities, and to working class places. And they, I, I believe they did it in like, they were doing it in like halls and places. They were, they were trying to take theater out to where people would come and see it and say, this isn't just the province of a certain kind of person who comes to the theater and has this amount of money to spend on it. And I, and so I think that that red and blue thing is absolutely right, that we've got to be really aware of the signals that we're sending. And if we really want a full audience, if we really want an audience of people that's a diverse audience, and diverse means a lot of things, one of the things I think diverse means that's most important is diversity of viewpoint. Um, and if we're telling people, if you don't agree with us, we don't, you're not welcome, that's not a good place to be. A few years ago, Maria and I were climbing with a guide on the Acropolis, if I have my geography right, and we looked down on the original theater of Thespis, Mm. Uh, you know, hence thespians, right? But it, but the, the thing is, it showed how long and how deep the cultural roots are of theater. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I'd like to hear from you is, in your, over your 20-year career, especially, you know, the last 20 years in GAM, uh, has the role of theater changed in your view? Oh, yeah, I think it, I, I, I do. I mean, I think it's always changing. I think it's this kind of mercurial thing because, you know, society, everything changes around us. And if we're doing our job, hopefully we're responding to those changes. Um, the hard, the, uh, it's a bit difficult with theater. It takes a long time to produce something. And oftentimes you're planning a season a year in advance, right? And sometimes longer in advance. And who can kind of tell, um, we know what's going to be happening. So you have to be careful of trying to be, you know, on the money issues and, and speaking to the headlines, if you will. That's a bit difficult to do. But at the same time, there are currents out there in the air, right, that are constantly changing. And we've witnessed, I think, in the past, you know, certainly in the past decade and five years and three years in the pandemic, and we've had some pretty substantial, significant, what you might call cultural and, you know, economic crises that uh, that we need to kind of think about responding to and then how people respond to them. So we have to keep our ear attuned to what that is. But ultimately, it comes back right back down to what you're saying, being at the Acropolis, right? Is that, and this is another thing Oscar talks about, because he's so great about talking about the history of this, the, of, of what we do. And, you know, it used to be kind of, you know, the the first kind of plays were directly spoken to the audience. And then all of, all, of, all of a sudden, there was two actors instead of one, and one person turned to the other one and they talked. And then there was a di the drama, there was dialogue and conflict, and that, but the audience was able to kind of get in there and be part of that. And I think that's the most important thing is staying attuned to what, where our audiences are and, you know, not what they want, because I don't even know what I want. I, but I knew, I guess I do, I know what I want, which is a powerful story and to be moved and to see, you know, kind of versions of, of, you know, the complexity of the revel the revelation of complex human nature on stage is always a thing that if we can keep that as a guiding principle. The political changes are not going to necessarily change what we're doing. And I think that's probably a better principle than saying there's a certain kind of politics that we have to ascribe to or a certain party that we have to kind of advocate for. Let's talk about audience for a minute. You know, um, since we've been going to GAM for, I don't know what, 30 years and uh, other theaters, you know, we have front row seats because theaters sell subscriptions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they want subscriptions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I went down to Flat Rock Theater. I think it's in North Carolina. And uh, Flat Rock, um, I, we got second row seats. Uh, mm -hmm. I tried to get front row seats, but I couldn't. We just visited. I got second row seats. So at the intermission, I said to the woman in front of me, I'm just curious, how do you get these front row seats? And she says, well, we've had these seats since uh, before the war. And I said, you got these before Vietnam? She said, no, dear, the Second World War. <laughs> so, Wow. And, and the interesting thing was the intermissions that were 40 minutes because people had so many walkers and things. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, um, how have audiences, uh, how has the demographic 
and audience expectation changed if it has over the years? Yeah, you know, we often hear, I'm of a couple of minds on this, but I, I will give you my, my my serious kind of thoughts that I thought a lot, of, a lot about this because, you know, I've been working professionally uh, as a theater maker for, um, you know, the better part of three decades now um, from all of my adult life. And, um, and the theater has been dying uh, and the audiences have been dying every minute of that 30 years, you know? <laughs> Um, and I have, we've all heard that over and over again, right? You've been going to the theater longer than I have, you know, you've probably been going to the, you've been going to the game longer than I've been there. Um, so, and I think, and we're always talking about how do we get younger audiences? How do we get, and of course we need to do that, you know, but I was a younger person who went to the theater, but I think primarily I went to the theater as a younger person. I loved it at first. And then I desperately wanted to be a part of it. And I think we attract younger people who want to be a part of it. And I think for regular audiences, meaning you kind of normal average audience that doesn't want to be a performer, but enjoys the theater. I think as a fine art, the theater, like the ballet and uh, like classical music in particular, the fine arts, as we call them, right? If you get a degree in these things in college, they put an F between the M and the A, right? right, right. Um, I think, degree, isn't it? In fact, yeah. And, and I, and I, and like, and I, and I, and I know because you you have great connections with obviously and, and great support of of all of these art forms, including the ballet, especially. And I just think of my my relationship with the ballet. I'm a big ballet fan, and I came to that in middle age. And I think I think what happens is these arts deal with something fundamental to us that we don't really not all of us, but in May, in the main, we don't really start to deal with a need until we hit middle age, that we have this, there's, there's the veil starts to get thinner. We see our parents die. Our grandparents go when we're younger, if things go in the right direction, right? That average thing, our parents go, all of a sudden we're next in line. We need stories. We crave stories. We crave art that hits us in a different way and allows us a different way in. And I think the theater, the ballet, classical music, in particular, feed that need. And it and it's that's why our audiences tend to skew older and why they don't die. Why when we do age out and every year, you know, we get our subscribers come back and someone's passed, you know, many people have passed. And then there then there's a, a replacement of those with this next generation of people who are craving those stories. At the same time, I don't want to say that we can't we have to can't think about cultivating uh, younger audiences. But we what, what I think the mistake sometimes we make is we think that if we flatter younger audiences by the way they're engaging certain kinds of technological advances, that we actually gut what it is that we do best, which mm -hmm. is human to human, um, you know, live and in person stuff. You know, you can't you you know, I don't know how maybe someone better than I will pick this, but I don't know how AI, for instance, is going to help me um, uh, love the ballet more. You know what I mean? I, 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 nothing's going to replace. I was just at New York City Ballet a couple of weeks ago, and nothing is going to replace me being in the room watching that extraordinary human endeavor take place in front of me live with all of the danger that entails, the risk, the breathtaking moments of awe. That I can't, it's very much more difficult for me to experience that in a two-dimensional form or through some kind of screen. Now, that's that's a great point. You know, we were down in New York a couple of weeks ago. We saw a Kimberly Akimbo, which mm -hmm. is extraordinary. We saw a Goodnight Oscar where uh, uh, Sean Hayes actually played the entire score of Rhapsody in Blue. I was just I've seen three things that brought down a house, and that was one of them in my career. I'll say in tangential, I'll say tangentially, uh, you're looking at a guy who saw Man of La Mancha with Richard Kiley. Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you brought up the ballet. So when they asked me to be president of the ballet, I said, look, there's one condition. I'm going to run this as a business, okay? Mm -hmm. And I've learned uh, in serving on several boards that debt kills art. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't experiment. You can't afford to fail. And you should have the freedom to fail in artistic forms, right. my opinion. My observation was that uh, government, outside the pandemic, government giving uh, had really dropped off substantially. Corporate giving had dropped off substantially. There were some foundations. And then there was a lot of individual giving. Uh, What's your experience here in terms of, you know, making ends meet uh, in this day and age? Yeah. As you point out, and you well know, because you've been doing this for a long time, and, and you know, if Alan, if we had, you know, um, if the arts community and the arts and culture community, um, you know, we we could, you know, Xerox um, you, and 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 there's just not enough numbers right now of people who are out there who understand exactly what you're talking about, which is that what is the subsidy that we need, right, in order to provide um, the room for risk. And that if we're walking a tightrope where if we can't sell out every ticket, if we everything can't be a hit, that then that that's going to kind of really narrow what we're going to do for audiences. And thus the audiences will end up dissipating or disappearing, even though sometimes intuitively we think do the popular, the most popular thing we can think of and we'll yeah, draw in. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. How to find that what that model is going to be going forward is 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 an open question right now. But I agree. How do we find I think we need a new business model. Um, uh, for the fine arts in particular, the not-for-profit arts, because of course, as you well know, that ticket prices, right, aren't going to do it. If we want to make it accessible, it can't be through tickets. Mm-hmm. It isn't on Broadway in New York, but then we ask, how much are we paying for tickets to go see a Broadway show? And now it's an average, you're going to be well over a couple hundred bucks. And, you know, and that's just not sustainable for a, a regional um, arts institution right. to try to expect for audiences and it kills accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that 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 is the hardest thing, and especially right now because we're all of us across industries are seeing um, a, a a massive downturn, a significant downturn in ticket sales because of the pan- pandemic. And what happened was it's not just that people, you know, about masking or or fear of the disease or anything like that. That was part of it, certainly. I think that's dissipating now. I think the bigger problem is habit. That in that three years or two and a half years of kind of relative isolation for people and then engaging through, you know, Zoom and things like that, which really didn't fill the bill, we got used to sitting on the couch. We got used to (laughs) our subscriptions became not subscriptions to theaters, but to Netflix, to HBO, to all the streaming services. I don't know about you. I can't even keep track of the subscriptions I have. I'm like, I have to go through them every few months and I go, oh, I I haven't watched anything on that. and, And I'm paying five bucks a month. for What am I, an idiot? You know? And so I just call them all. Um, but it's also really good programming. There's a lot of really good stuff on your television. And then you go like, you're trying to get people to say, Hey, come back out for the live event. And our, our, the chain that's attaching us to the couch is a little bit more firmer. You know, it's a made of sterner stuff. So that's been a real, I think that's the big issue in front of us right now is while we're balancing that and getting people back, making the argument for the live experience that what do we do in order to, you know, to, to ensure that that lost ticket revenue is being made up for somehow so we can remain sustainable and still take risk. I don't have an answer to that question other than I think where we're seeing it is you're right, is there's, there's people, you know, you're among them that are, that, that, that understand this problem and are, have been very generous on an individual level. And so uh, subscriptions are another thing is getting people to buy into an an entire season of stuff, right? And saying, so then, all right, in a sense, you're asking people to make an appointment. So maybe that helps get them off the couch a little bit. We all need that. Um, You know, oh, I got a date. I got to go. And you're also asking someone to kind of invest in the entire product of your organization, right? That there's something about if I see, if I go to everything that ballet does, you know, and I see all of these great individual productions, 
But then I'm thinking about dancers. You know, I saw that dancer there that do this and now she's doing that or he's doing that. I'm thinking about the relationship of those roles, perhaps. I'm thinking of why the artistic director picked those two pieces and what they say to each other over the course of the year. You know, so I hope that that so that we're, we're, we're giving an audience reasons to say, hey, there's more than just you come and putting your butt in the seat for this one night, that you're creating a relationship with us and that we, we you know, and if you can't afford to, um, we certainly need you to help to make it sh- to ensure that it's accessible to others. And by right, is it Tennessee Williams who said, uh, depend upon the kindness of strangers? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> what are we, right? I mean, when we did, right, you can see behind me in our Zoom call here, the poster for Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. <laughs> Back of the wall. And that's, you know, of course, it's the very end of the play. And it kills people when you hear that line, you know, when the doctor, the doctor, the only person who offers Blanche a helping hand. Yeah, and it yeah. comes at this moment of absolute destruction. And the audience just loses it because... Don't we all need it? You know, and uh, certainly the theater does. You said something very interesting, and that is that um, I can see looking at streaming on Netflix or anything else uh, as a replacement for movies. I can't see it as a replacement for live theater. And I want to give you an example. Uh, I want to see if you remember this of drama within drama. And that is uh, you were doing a, a play. You were in the scene uh, mm-hmm. with someone who I think was in a bed and there was an emergency in the audience. Somebody got very ill and the EMTs came. And so you announced, let's just all stay calm. Yeah. And, the, and the EMTs came. They took the person out on a stretcher who, who uh, thankfully uh, was recovered. Yep. Uh, we found out later. However, after that break, I mean, there wasn't an intermission. After that happened, you and the other actor resumed your, your roles. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been performing for 30 years as a keynote speaker, and I've never walked on stage without notes somewhere. I mm-hmm. might not refer to them, but I might just in case. I'm not paid to memorize. In your case, and of course, what you do isn't, it's totally memorization. It's, it's the emotional impact. However, your ability to pick up that scene after that diversion was astounding. How, how did you feel at that time? Well, you know, it gives the lie to everything we do and at the same time enhances it, right? So there we are. I believe that production, that's happened to me a few times actually on stage. Um, but I believe the time you're talking about was we were doing Pillow Man by Martin McDonough. And it was a very intense scene at the end of the act with my my character and the character's brother, at, which at the end of... Uh, my character actually suffocates his brother, kills him in the end of that scene. It's a very powerful end of the act. Um, and so you're doing that. And then in the room, someone collapses. Now, you're, you're, uh, you, the best thing about that was it, it was an exhaustion thing or a panic attack. It wasn't a heart attack and the person recovered well, which is the best thing. But all of a sudden, real life enters the room in a way that we're only cathartically experiencing through the art, right? And art gives us safety. You can watch me strangle my brother and it's powerful and you can be moved by it but ultimately you know you're safe we're safe the actor's safe all of that's happening at the end of that play i get shot point blank in the head you know what i mean from like three feet away and and that's a very powerful thing and as awful as it is to watch everybody's safe knowing that i'm going to be okay that that's absolutely a blank gun we've rehearsed it a thousand times safety is our first priority but then someone collapses in the audience and then an actor stops and says and for a moment you don't know is it real? Right. We ask yeah. ourselves that question because yeah. that reality has been so permeated. And you say and then I say, ladies and gentlemen, please, we've had we're going to and, and will everyone please go to the lobby so we can address this, which everyone did. But then it also galvanizes an audience. You experience something profound together that you were trying to attempt with the play. And I think it then everyone's attention was able to refocus. You never know if that's going to happen um, and uh, and come back and tend to explore those same things through the relative safety of art is also a powerful experience.
Yeah, there was. I, I remember it vividly. I don't do remember the name of the play, but I remember where you were seated on the side of the bed, everything. Uh, so I have two more questions, uh, Tony. One is this. Um, I saw a play, I, I think it was called Pre Preview or Preface to the Alien Garden. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know the play. So it was yeah. must have been 25 years ago when I saw it. And I've never forgotten it because um, they were, uh, I want to say, uh, uh, there was a, a gang involved in that, and they were shooting yeah. off guns. The yeah. audience was warned they'd be shooting guns with blanks. Yeah. Well, at one point, uh, a man near the front of the theater uh, took a cell phone call. And the actor with one of the guns went over there and he pointed the gun at him and he said, you shut that cell phone off or you're done. And he broke the fourth wall, right? Yeah. And there was a temporary total silence. And then there were this, it was applause throughout the theater. What do you think about breaking the fourth wall? Is that legitimate theater? Yeah, I think I think sometimes it is. I think you you know you never know in a moment what an actor's going through, and I wonder how I would have responded in the same moment. We hear those moments. There's certainly things we remember, right? You carry that story with you. That's a great story. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's two sides to that, right? There's there's the thing that goes through your mind as an actor is, is this this disturbance sufficient enough that I have to deal with it uh. in order to regain the audience's attention, or is this, is it my job to catch, recapture the audience's attention without letting the play drop? And that actor seems to have done kind of both, <laughs> though threatening an audience member directly with a gun has its own ramifications too. I mean, you know, who knows? Um, I, I, I'll tell you the best version of it I ever saw, which had nothing to do with a gun. It was at Lincoln Center and it was Henry IV, the great Shakespeare. Kevin Klein was playing Falstaff. And he was out in the middle of the stage. He was doing, it was after the war, there's, you know, his body's all over the place and he's running around. He's just trying to, you know, keep his life. And he has that great, he has this great speech, this very famous speech about honor and how honor isn't really worth anything if you're going to end up dead on the floor because it's Falstaff. He's a ne'er-do-well, right? And it's Kevin Klein, So he's charming the crap out of the audience. <laughs> and he's in the middle of the speech and cell phone goes off at Lincoln Center. And it's one of those chimey things like bing, bing, ding, 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 ding. And he stops. And then he goes on again, and then it goes off again. And you hear the audience's tension rising, right? Getting really upset because they're paying a lot of money to see Kevin Klein do Shakespeare. And then it's, and then he stops again and it goes, and then he tries to continue with the speech and then it goes a third time. So all comedy comes in threes, right? So he rides it, he stops, he looks out at the audience, he cocks his head and he says, I have heard the chimes at midnight, which is a very famous <laughs> line he had said earlier in the play. Brings the house down, screaming, laughing, also, preserved that audience member's life because people were about yeah. ready to kill them because everyone was so happy. And then as he wrote the laugh down, he mimed opening the script, flipping to the page he was supposed to be on, finding his place in the speech and started from there again. And he okay. did it with his hands to let you know, it's like, where was I? And he went right back into the play. And I thought that was a piece of magic because what could have, he could have turned on the audience member which Patti Lapone has done, Brian yeah. Denny, he used to do all the time, yeah. and we'd have a great story. But instead of that, he found this miraculous way to actually galvanize the audience and then put them, and I actually, you know, I, I don't need to be telling tales out of school, but I was in, in a film with, uh, that Kevin Klein was in, and I had, was having, we were having dinner one night, and I got to, as a complete fan and geek and Shakespeare geek got to tell him I saw that. And he was very, he was very, very charming and kind about it. I was like, Oh my God, that was one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. And, um, but of course you having Kevin Klein's talent is no easy thing. I have.
You know, I love these stories, but, you know, my wife and I saw Kevin Klein with Linda Ronstadt in Pirates of Penzance. Yeah. And the way it was staged, the orchestra was in a pit, but there was a walkway around the pit. And Kevin Klein's got a sword out and he's fighting people off and he gets to the orchestra conductor and he starts fighting with him. The orchestra conductor has his baton. Yeah, and, yeah, fighting. Yeah. and I said to my wife, I said, what do you think of that? And my wife said, God, he's gorgeous. Oh. <laughs> so we all appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. He could and charm the birds out of the trees, as, as they say. What a performer. Yeah. Tony, I really appreciate you being here today. Could you just tell our listeners, uh, if they want to learn more about GAM, if they like to make a contribution, where should they go? Yeah. Uh, easiest place, depending on how you do it, is www.gamtheater, with an R-E, dot org. Uh, and our phone number is uh, 401-723-4266. But the website has all the info information you need on the new season, which is coming up, which is going to be great, uh, and how you can help. And so, and GAM is G-A-M-M, two M. G-A-M-M-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. Great. Uh, I want to thank you again. I want to wish you another 20 years of success. Thank you. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, I'll see you some more along the way. Yeah, yeah you that. might. You, who knows? <laughs> I'm due for another one. That was a long time ago. So make sure call in any time. You look the same. Thank you so much. Thank, sir. You. Thank you. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.